10, 1 through 21. So let's stand together as we read God's word. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and to to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, and he is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. You have your Bibles open there to John chapter 10. Most of you are aware that the Bible wasn't written already divided into chapter and verse. It's just a letter. And the chapter and verse divisions didn't come into the Bible until about the 13th century. So as they tried to divide up the Bible, they tried to find where natural breaks would occur. But some chapters flow one into the other, and that's what we have here. We Last week we looked at chapter 9, but it's helpful as you go into chapter 10 to understand it's really a continuation of the same thought. It's not necessarily that this conversation happened in one particular day, but John's trying to push these events together to say, I want you to hear one long stream of thought. And so when you get to the last verse that we read today, can a demon open the eyes of a blind man? Well, you know, from chapter nine, that's what we were talking about in chapter nine. So this is one long sort of discourse here. And what happened in chapter nine is the man healed a man. Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. And this event kicked off an argument that happened. That was really most of the chapter from chapter nine, verse eight to the end of the chapter. And it's a it's a conversation that happens between the blind man 
and the Pharisees. And it's a really funny kind of conversation because the blind man, they don't think he really was blind. And he's saying, hey, I was the blind guy. And then they draw on the guy's parents and say, is this the guy? And it's an interesting conversation between the blind man and the Pharisees. And really the conversation wraps around not whether the man was blind, but the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What is what is it this guy has done and what does that mean about him? And in chapter nine, verse twenty four, the Pharisees have this conclusion. We know that this man is a sinner. So they have encountered Jesus enough to draw a conclusion and say, well, whatever else he is or he isn't, he's a sinner. And and the blind man draws his conclusion at the end of the chapter, verse thirty eight. He finally sees Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships Jesus. So in kind of a surprising twist to the end of the chapter, the blind man is the one who ends up seeing, and the seeing men, the Pharisees, are the ones who end up blind. And so you're meant to see that twist at the end of the chapter. Now, you'll notice that here in the last, these last, again, these last few verses, uh, again, this agitation or the stirring up is continuing to happen. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews. Some of them are saying he has a demon and other people are saying he couldn't possibly have a demon. And these actions and these teachings of Jesus are constantly stirring up uh, conversation and conflicting conversation. They're, they're witnessing Jesus's miracles. They're encountering Jesus. They're listening to Jesus. But the same people are seeing all these events. But yet at the end, this group of people have a widely differing view of who Jesus actually is. So we see in verse 19, he has a demon. Verse 21, it's impossible that he has a demon. <clears throat> if we read through the rest of the chapter, verse 31, the Jews are prepared to stone Jesus and to kill him. And in verse 42, many people believe in Jesus. So, so this stirring up, this agitation by John is intentional. This stirring up or agitation by Jesus is intentional. And John is intentionally writing it. And it's intentional because he knows readers like you and I need to be stirred up. We need to be agitated to, to sort of like wake up out of a religious slumber and say, you know, you've got to really take a good look at Jesus. You've got to answer the question, who is Jesus? What do you think about him? You can't just sort of have this apathetic appetite about religion and say something like, well, what's the fuss about? I mean, it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, religions, they're all about the same. And John and Jesus are trying to say in the gospel, no, 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 they're not all the same. You're not going to draw the same conclusions about Jesus and other religious leaders. The difference between religions is the difference between light and darkness. It's the difference between heaven and hell. And so it's important as you look at Jesus to try to answer the question, who do you say that he is? And what does that mean for your life? This man that we've been encountering, Jesus, he's restored the sight of a blind man. He's going to raise someone from the dead in chapter 11. He's accepting worship and he's calling himself God. He's healed a blind man. He's going to raise somebody from the dead. 
He's accepting the worship of people, and he's using the Old Testament name for God and saying, you can just use that name for me now. You see, there's no, there's no way to get around what Jesus is saying. There's only two ways to look at Jesus. He really is a demon. He really is a lunatic. He really is insane, or he's not. And if he's not, then who is he? And I think the only rightful conclusion is, is to say he is God in the flesh. I mean, who speaks like this? Verse 18, Jesus says, I have authority to lay down my life. Well, a mortal man might say that. I have the authority to jump off a cliff if I want. I have the authority to stand in front of a bullet that's going to hit my wife or hit my daughter. I could, I could do that. But, but is it possible to say I also have the authority to raise myself back up? If I say, look, I have the authority to, to stand in front of the speeding bullet, but when I'm dead, I'm going to call myself back to life. I mean, if you heard someone speak like that, you would just say, you're just insane. I mean, you get half it right, but the other half, you're always so far off. It's, it's impossible for you to be a mortal man. And it is really impossible for Jesus to just be a mortal man. He's either insane or he is God. And, and John is driving you. He's driving me. He's driving the reader. When you walk through the gospel, as I'm doing right now with a couple, it's going to drive them to this question. Who is Jesus and what do you think about him? And so today we're in John chapter 10. And I want to get a handle on this passage by looking at uh, three different uh, people in the text. The sheep the thieves and robbers, and the good shepherd. So as we read through these 20 verses, that's really the three main actors on the stage. We have the sheep, we have thieves and robbers, and then we have the good shepherd. And so we're going to leave the good shepherd until next week's sermon. So today we're just going to look at the sheep and the thieves and robbers. Let's look at the sheep first. There's a great book about Psalm 23, and it's written by a guy named Philip Keller. And Philip Keller was a shepherd. And so he wrote a book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. So obviously the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. You probably are familiar with that language. And he's saying, hey, this is what it means to be a shepherd. And let me give you some insight of being a shepherd and what it means to take care of sheep, as the shepherd does in Psalm 23. And when you read Keller's book, you get a not-so-pretty picture of sheep. Here are some of the things he talks about. Sheep are nearsighted and stubborn. Okay? They're nearsighted. Nearsighted means I can see near, I can't see far. I always had those confused in my mind. If you're farsighted, you can see far, and you need the little half-glasses that I'm working on right now to see near. But sheep are nearsighted. They can see things very clearly right in front of them. But when they lift their heads up in the distance, things get sort of foggy for them. And they also couple this great characteristics with stubbornness. So, so even if the shepherd comes along and he can tell that the sheep is in near danger and the sheep can't tell it because everything looks foggy. They're stubborn. They're, they're not willing to just move along. You have to sort of move them along without their uh, consent. 
And so what happens with a sheep is they get so focused, their head is, is down and they're so focused on what they're eating, it's been recorded that a sheep has eaten himself or herself right off a cliff. They were so focused on eating that just one more bite and then boom, whoa, I'm dead. They're so wanting to consume for themselves, they don't have the ability to look out that they eat themselves right off a cliff. And they could be right next to the cliff and the shepherd could come along and say, hey, let's move away. And they're stubbornly resistant to move away from their own death. Even when it means their own safety, they just don't really want to be moved from feeding themselves. Sheep are easily stuck on their back. It's called a cast sheep. If you, you should just Google this because this will be worth a laugh for you. Because, you know, when you Google something, it says, what does it say? It says everything and then images. So I, I Googled cast sheep. And when you Google it, you have all these funny pictures of these sheep, you know, on their back. And what happens is they have all this wool. And if they either fall down or roll over to scratch the back, they're like, uh-oh, I can't get back up. And so they start kicking their legs But what happens is just really within just a few moments, gas starts building up in their stomach, which paralyzes their legs. So now they're like this. And they have a gas problem. And the gas problem leads to now I can't breathe. And so if a shepherd doesn't come and pry them back over. Massage circulation back into their legs, hold them up for some time until they get steady. Then the sheep who's been cast or cast down will lay on its back and within just a few hours be dead. Sheep don't have a homing device and they can't survive in the wild. When I was seven years old, we had a dog named Peanuts. And one day, we just couldn't find old peanuts. And a day turned into a few days, and a few days turned into a few weeks. And sad as it was, we gave up on old peanuts. But about three months later, guess what happened? Not looking very good, but coming back into our yard was peanuts. Now, if you've ever lost a cat or a dog, you go to bed thinking, They might make it back home. If you had a pet sheep and lost a pet sheep, you wouldn't think this. They have no homing device. They have no sense of orientation. If they get lost, they just have no idea where they are in the world. They couldn't possibly, except for by sheer luck, make it back home. And also a problem is when they're lost, they can't make it on their own. Peanuts made it for two or three months. But if you give a sheep out on their own, they can't make it. You never come across a a herd of wild sheep. They just don't make it on their own. They can't seem to survive, which is why a shepherd has to go out and find them. And when the shepherd does find the sheep, it's not like finding your lost dog. I mean, I'm sure if I had come up to Peanuts and go, Peanuts, come here, boy, you don't... You know, and he'd experienced some sort of bladder control problem because he was so excited. You have a dog like this, they get excited. You're like, okay, calm down. And so that's not what a sheep would do. A sheep would get startled. Say, whoa, where did you come from? Why? I'm so focused down here. I can't possibly see anything. And what a sheep does is in its nervousness, it starts running back and forth. 
And the shepherd has to go tackle the sheep, tie rope around the sheep, throw the sheep over his shoulders, and take him all the way back to the fold. Now imagine if you were the sheep. You get back to the fold. And you're like, dude, what's wrong with this guy? I was perfectly fine. I was having a nice meal. I, I felt like I was fine. I was in safety. And out of nowhere, he startled me. And, and then I started running around like any normal sheep would do. And he tackled me. Then he tied me up and he brought me all the way back here. I mean, that shepherd just needs to take a chill pill. Come on. That's how sheep would think. Sheep are stupid. Sheep are helpless. Sheep can't be on their own. And Jesus is using this picture to say, that's what you're like. That's what I'm like. If you want to get a great picture of what you're like, you're like a sheep. It's, it's really not very pretty. And my guess is you can imagine some of those events for yourself. Yeah, I remember when I had my head down and I was so focused on the thing that I thought was giving me life, I actually was going to my death in the midst of it. I thought I could live on my own, but I just can't survive. I was doing something. I was scratching my back thinking I was having a good time. And just in a few hours, I was paralyzed. I was nearly dead. Isaiah says this, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. And it's absolutely critical. It's it's crucial. It's mandatory that you see yourself as a sheep if you're ever going to meet the shepherd. You have to be willing to say, spiritually, I'm, I'm helpless. I'm, I'm utterly insufficient for my own spiritual well-being. Let me say that one more time because this is often a high hurdle for people. If you really want to know the shepherd, the first thing you have to really see is yourself. You have to see yourself as a sheep. I'm, I'm utterly insufficient for my own spiritual well-being. I cannot make it on my own. Tim Keller, a pastor many of you know in New York City, he is preaching on this text, and he drives this point home, I thought, in a very important way. This is what he says. We are continually overestimating or underestimating what we are capable of. For example, if, you present, if your present self thinks of your past, your present self thinks of your past self as a fool. Your present self always thinks of your past self as a fool. Your present self looks back at your past self and says, well, back then I needed guidance. Back then I didn't understand. But now, now I see. So your present self thinks of your past self as a fool. But you see the problem. You see the problem? Your future self will think of your present self. As a fool. If you're 16, you look back to when you were 12 and say, oh, I was a fool to think or act in such a manner. Or when you're 25, you look back when you're 16. Or when you're 50, you look back when you're 25. And I love the way Keller concludes this. What this means is that you're, all, you're always a fool. Yet, okay, 
You understand the logic here? What this means is you're always a fool, yet you always think you're just getting over it. You always think you're just at the point of arriving. You're always just at the point of enlightenment. Do you hear how that works as a sheep? Oh, back then, when I was 16, when I was 25, when I was 48, oh, I was so foolish. But because I had these experiences, now I'm arriving. I'm just at the point of enlightenment. And see, that's our problem. A sheep always thinks they're just at the point of enlightenment. They're just at the point of getting it. But they don't even see themselves well enough to know that if you just projected 10 more years down the road, you'd look at your current self and say, you're so foolish for thinking that. You remember back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, he thought too much of himself. Nicodemus is the Pharisee and the ruler who comes to Jesus at night. And he comes. If you remember this particular part of this sermon, he says, Rabbi or teacher, we know. Hear that? Nicodemus, the religious ruler, coming to the creator of the universe, and the first thing he wants to let Jesus know is what he knows. Jesus, here's what's important, what I know. And we know you're a teacher. You're a teacher from God. And this is how Jesus responds to him. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That seemed like an odd response. But you see what Jesus is saying? Nicodemus, you can't see. I don't care what you know. What you know is irrelevant at this particular point. Because you don't know anything. You're a sheep. But Nicodemus is a ruler. Nicodemus is important. When Nicodemus walks in the room, everybody knows Nicodemus has arrived. He's the smartest guy in every room. And so when he walks into Jesus' room, he just has to bring that attitude with him. And he wants to say, Jesus, we've gotten together, the real smart people, and we just need to let you know what we know. And Nicodemus is helped out by Jesus, by Jesus saying, look, Nicodemus, before you stick your other foot in your mouth by informing me about what you know, let me help you out. You don't know what you're talking about. See, Nicodemus just couldn't see himself as a sheep. That was not a possibility for Nicodemus. And because he couldn't see, he came in the dark and he left in the dark. So before you see the light, before you see the gate, before you see the good shepherd, the thing you have to see about yourself is that I'm a sheep. A good prayer for a sinner's prayer coming to Jesus would be this. Jesus, I'm a fool and I don't know it. I'm I'm continually overestimating myself and underestimating my sin. I'm continually thinking I'm just now at the point of enlightenment when in reality I'm in the dark. Spiritually, I'm utterly insufficient. I'm completely dependent on you for my spiritual well-being. So the question is for you is how do you see yourself? How you see yourself is going to make a big difference on how you see Jesus. Second piece, thieves and robbers. You see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 8, you see it again in verse 10. There's, there's the sheep, 
Then there's these two competitors. We've got thieves and robbers coming in, and we've got the good shepherd, which we'll talk about next week. How many of you know what wood veneer is? You know what wood veneer is? That, that's a piece of furniture, a wood piece of furniture that is made up of particle board or some cheap piece of wood, less expensive piece of wood. Usually it's cheap. But what happens is you shave off a nice piece of wood, like a piece of oak or a piece of maple. And usually the veneer is less than one-eighth of an inch thick. And what you do is you take this little strip, this very thin strip of veneer, and you put it alongside this particle board. So when you're done, what it looks like is you have a real piece of furniture, a real solid wood pulpit or a real solid wood table or a real solid wood desk. But veneer is just a fake. It's a facade. It's thin. And I don't know if you've ever tried to move a piece of wood veneer furniture. You could probably move it once or twice. But you go about three or four times on wood veneer. Have you ever done this? You've moved an entertainment piece or a desk. And in your effort to pick it up, somebody picks it up a little sideways. And what happens? It all just like, like a house of cards. It all collapses on each other. You can't ever sand a piece of wood veneer furniture. Hey, I got a little nick on here. As soon as you sand it, what do you get to? Particle board. So wood, well, this wood veneer, it's popular because it looks like the real thing, but really it's just a cheap imitation. And when Jesus enters into the first century religious environment, he's like sandpaper. And he's rubbing against the Pharisees. And it doesn't take very long because to find out that underneath the Pharisees' religious facade is it's counterfeit. It's just particle board. They look like the real thing, but really they're fake. They're an imitation. They're a thief. They're a robber. You notice that Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he says, Now you think the sheep are valuable? And the sheep are valuable because you don't steal things that aren't valuable. So they think the sheep are valuable, but what the sheep are valuable for is just to line their own pockets, to make sure I've got a following. It's either about power or about money. And as long as they're feeding me, then I'm okay. But they would never feed the sheep. They would never lay down their life for the sheep. And so when Jesus chooses this picture of the good shepherd, he definitely has in mind himself, and he's contrasting that against the particle board or the cheap imitations that he's facing with the Pharisees. Listen to this passage out of Ezekiel chapter 34, which no doubt Jesus was applying to the Pharisees. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. You've not strengthened the weak. You haven't healed the sick. You haven't bound up the injured. You've not searched for the lost. I'm against these shepherds. I will hold them accountable. I myself will search for my sheep. I myself will look after them. I myself will search for the lost and bring back the stray. And I myself will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. Well, who do you think Ezekiel was pointing to? Jesus, the good shepherd. God's going to come and look for his own sheep. You remember this in Matthew 23, Jesus has this list of woes, woe is you to the Pharisees. And this is what he says in one of them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're blind guides. You're like a whitewashed tomb. 
You're beautiful on the outside like wood veneer. That's my addition. But on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. You're full of everything unclean. Outside, you appear to be people of righteousness, but inside, you're full of hypocrisy. You see that picture? When Jesus stands up and rubs up against that kind of religious background, he gets a lot of kickback. So much that he is stoned or they want to stone him. And so he's looking at these these Pharisees and he's saying, you're fake. You've come into this fold. You're really trying to steal these people. And they think you're the real person because you have this fake religious veneer on. And, of course, in every generation, you can have false shepherds. And those false shepherds can lead you in any number of false directions. But the particular false direction that Jesus is trying to address and that is being addressed in this particular passage is the false direction of legalism. And it's why they have this long conversation about the Sabbath in chapter 9. And so I wanted to just to address that as we ended this morning. I want to address this idea of legalism, this idea that it looks good, but it's not good by doing two things. I want to give you a couple of quotes, a couple of definitions, and then I want to give you a picture. So I think of this as if you like to open the book and read, then you'll like the definitions. If you're more of a picture kind of person, then you'll like the illustration. Does that make sense? So here we are on a couple of definitions of legalism, R.C. Sproul. Legalism is a distortion of obedience. It skews the motive and purpose by seeing good deeds as ways to earn God's favor. Characteristic of legalism, legalism is an arrogance and a condescending attitude toward those who do not work in the same way as you do. Legalism's self-advancing purpose squeezes humble kindness and compassion out of the heart. What a powerful quote. Another definition from Michael Horton. Legalism happens to be when the gospel is absorbed into the law. You often hear calls to be the gospel. Which means your own conformity to the righteousness God demands becomes the message rather than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just say that one more time because it's so, so critical. You often hear this call, you should be the gospel, which means your conformity becomes the message, rather than the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This results in an emphasis on commands, exhortations, spiritual workout plans, and personal agendas. The gospel is taken for granted or left behind. You do realize that you can never be the gospel. You might be able to display the gospel. You might be able to talk about the gospel, but you can't be the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ, and there's only one person who can be the gospel. Last definition, Lee Irons. Legalism is the mistaken idea idea that you've been accepted into the program, but you're still on probation. (laughs) I love that. You're in, but you're on probation. I mean, you got in by God's grace, but boy, now we're judging. We're going to make sure you stay in. 
The gospel says you're beyond probation. Because Jesus has passed the probationary test on your behalf. If you like words, you can tell that I'm rereading Pilgrim's Progress. So I ended my last sermon with an illustration from Pilgrim's Progress. I'm ending this sermon with an illustration with Pilgrim's Progress. And you remember Pilgrim, his name is Christian. He's got this great burden on his back. And he's going from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And this big burden is sin. He needs to know how to get rid of of it. He doesn't really know how to get rid of it. And he's, he's out walking in the field. And he comes across the guy named Evangelist. And Evangelist has this great conversation that I ended with last week. He's, he's like, where are you going? And he says, I don't know where to go to get rid of this problem that I'm carrying, this weight. And Evangelist points with his finger and says, do you see the distant narrow gate? And Christian says, no, I don't see it. Okay, do you see the distant shining light? I think I do. And then Christian says, then Evangelist says, okay, you keep your eye on the light. You, you keep on this path. You keep going directly towards the light, and you will find the narrow gate. Well, as soon as Evangelist leaves and Christian gets on the path, he runs into somebody, and that person is trying to direct him off the path, and that guy's name is Worldly Wise Man. And listen to this great dialogue they have. Worldly Wise Man to Christian, where are you going? And what are you doing with this great burden on your back? Christian, I'm going to the small sheep gate. For I'm informed that there I will enter into a way where I will soon get rid of my heavy burden. Oh, if only you had the patience to hear me, said worldly wise man. I could direct you to another place where you could obtain your desires without the dangers you are now headed for. Sir. I beg you, share this secret with me. Worldly wise man responds, You will find relief in the nearby village called Morality. In that village resides a gentleman whose name is Legality. And he has the skill to help rid men of burdens like yours. Sir, which way do I have to go to Mr. Legality's house? The worldly wise man says this, Do you see that hill in the distance? You must go over the hill... And the first house you come to is his. See, in Bunyan's writing, the hill was Mount Sinai. That's where the law was. Christian, you need to climb that hill. And when you climb that hill and you get over the hill, then you'll have arrived. And you'll find Mr. Legality's house. As Christian neared the hill, he was struck how high and frightening the hill appeared. One side of the hill hung precariously over the path. Get the picture? He's, he's along a path, and it looks like the hill is going to fall on him. Christian was afraid of the overhanging hill. He was afraid it would fall on him. On him. And I love how, bird, how uh, uh, John Bunyan says this. His burden seemed heavier to him once he got on this path. Why? Because you can't keep the works of the law. And if you try, your burdens get heavier, not lighter. Thankfully, who does he also find on the path? Evangelist. He just shows up out of nowhere. And he says to Christian, no man has ever gotten rid of his burden by Mr. Legality's help. You cannot be set free by works of the law. Mr. Legality is a cheat. 
His looks may be pleasant, but he's a hypocrite. You see, that's the problem with the Pharisees. That's the problem with legalism. That's the problem with being religious, but not knowing Jesus. Is it looks right. But it puts a heavy burden. And it is a burden you can't possibly carry. Someone else has carried that burden. He's not a thief. He's not a robber. He's not come to kill, steal, or destroy. He's come to give life and give it abundantly. And his name is Jesus Christ. When we see ourselves as a sheep, when we see that there are real counterfeits out there, we say, Lord, I need help. I need a good shepherd. That's next week's sermon. Let's pray together. Lord, I recognize that this morning, at least some of the attitudes in here could be apathetic. Ah, religion. My wife's excited about it, but it's all the same. It doesn't really matter. It could be that, ah, I know some people who are sheep. I just, I'm not one of them. I need some help, but I don't really need that kind of help. I never get stuck in a way that I can't get myself unstuck. I, I'm fine on my own. I'm, I'm satisfied with my life. Or I'm unsatisfied and I've bought into the idea that I can be good enough. There's a certain law out there. I can measure up to that law. I can get there and I can get in. Lord, I, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you'd work on those attitudes and many more to shine light in that dark place and let people see the good shepherd. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen.